Well, tonight we reach the midpoint of our study of the Lord's Prayer. Now, you know very well by this point that the Lord's Prayer appears to us in two different places in the New Testament, in Luke and in Matthew. In Luke, we hear Jesus tell his disciples to say this. When you pray, say this. Here it is, verbatim. And he gives us the prayer. But in Matthew, where we're primarily focused tonight, Jesus tells his followers to pray like this. And so from these two portraits of this prayer, what we can infer as Christians is we can see how we should speak and act. And of course, in every way, we should see how we as Christians ought to pray. So far in this prayer, Jesus has showed us who it is that we invoke. You know, when you pray, uh, when you speak, to someone, you're asking another person. So who is it that we're talking to? Well, we're talking to Jesus' Father. Now, the exciting thing is we get to now call him Father, too, because we are united to Jesus by faith, which means that we are adopted as the Father's children. So he is now our Father. The Father of Jesus is the, is the God who we're speaking to. So that's the first thing we learn. Then we learn that when we pray to the Father, when we talk to the Father, the first thing we talk about to the Father is the Father himself. And so over the last few weeks, we've first, we've prayed that his name be hallowed, meaning that, um, that we would revere and experience him as he is, that he would be truly and fully God to us. Not that we would have a mediated version or a reduced version or our own version of God, but that he would truly be God as God is to us. And then secondly, we prayed that his kingdom would come. That is, that we would see God's activity throughout the scriptures, his activity of healing and forgiving and reconciling and restoring, that that would start to take place more and more in our here and now. And third and finally, last week, we prayed that his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That is, that Christ's humble incarnation and his crucifixion would transform us from who we once were and the world around us, bringing God's heavenly space, his heavenly dwelling place, into perfect alignment with our fallen earthly space, so that uh, by his divine yet self-sacrificing will, heaven and earth could come together as one reality instead of two separated realities, separated by sin and death. So these are the three things that we pray to the Father about the Father, about who he is, his person, his program, and all that stuff. But now that we've prayed this, we're free then to pray to the Father, not about the Father, but now about the family. We're free to pray for the Father, not for, um, uh, uh, or rather, we're free, to pay, we're free to pray to the Father about provisions for the family. And it starts with this, give us this day our daily bread. Now, after Martin Luther died, his friends came into his room to remove his body, and when they were doing that, they found a little note that he had written. It was kind of scrawled and and, and crumpled up, and it said this. Presumably, these were his last words that he ever communicated to anybody while he was alive. It said this, we are beggars. That is true. It's one of the last thoughts he had before he died. And with just those six words, I think we really see the breadth of his anthropology. That is what he thought about human beings. As human beings, from beginning to end, what we are as creatures is totally dependent on God. Without his grace, we have nothing, and even more to the point, we are nothing. 
And on our merits, on our so-called merits and righteousness or whatever, those things are totally insufficient to win the favor of a God who is perfect and holy and just in every way. So apropos to us for tonight's study is how Luther's final words express, I think, a core theme of this prayer. Far from self-sufficiency, we are needy creatures who are completely, totally, utterly reliant on an external source outside of ourselves to give us life. We don't generate life from within us. That's how we might think of things in our modern world, that we're self-sustaining, that we're self-willed, we're the masters of our fates and the captain of our soul. That is not the truth, however. Truly, we are beggars whose only hope is the compassion of someone outside of us, somebody greater than us. So when he tells us to pray, give us this day our daily bread, what Jesus is doing is training us to see ourselves in a very important light. So consider this. While he's telling us to um, pray, give us this day our daily bread, this is against the backdrop of his disciples living any which way but that. So we think of James and John as they're vying for a, a place, a seat of honor at his left and his right side. Or maybe we think of Peter who is threatening, I'll kill anybody that even looks at you the wrong way, Jesus. It's always about what they can assert, what they can do, what they can bring to the so-called table. But Jesus teaches his disciples, as hard as it is for them to swallow this, truly I tell you, unless you turn and become like little children, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. The human inclination, warped by sin, is to will our way into heaven, to brute force our way into it. If we're good enough, if we're religious enough, if we're philanthropic enough, um, if for whatever reason we have enough money or education or, or whatever, we can get what we need. But that's not the mindset that Jesus tells us to have. Instead, if he, if he says, if we want to enter God's kingdom, we must be like little children. Now, what does that mean? Does it mean that we're supposed to be, you know, um, uh, believe in fairy tales and, and have a, too much energy? Well, maybe there's, <laughs> maybe there's something to that. I don't know. But I think that this, the obvious thing that we can learn about children that's true of every child, no matter how brilliant or precocious they might be, is that they are dependent on another to live. Can an infant feed and care for himself without a parent? No. Can a toddler protect and provide for herself without a guardian? Absolutely not. What happens if children are left to their own devices? They die. They can't sustain themselves. And according to Jesus, even in our adulthood, even when we find ourselves to be really self-sufficient, when we have uh, a good job that brings in a lot of money, and we have a lot of food in our pantry, and good, reliable cars, and a nice house, and we have everything we think we need, even in our adulthood, when it comes to our relationship to the Father, Jesus is fostering in us not a spirit of independence, but a spirit of dependence on the Father. Now, even if we don't want to acknowledge this, or even if we're totally ignorant of this fact, without God's sustenance, 
we, like those little children, would surely die. In fact, we would cease to exist immediately. I like the illustration that Wes Hill gives regarding us as creatures and how that relates to God's provision and providence. So, say over in the corner of this room, we have a big, brand new, beautiful 70-inch LCD TV. And we're watching, oh, I don't know, I'll just think of something random. We're watching the NCAA championship from this last year with the Georgia Bulldogs winning. You know, just something random, you know, just nothing I orchestrated beforehand. And we would see just such crisp, clear colors. Those figures would be so vibrant. Those silver britches would be so entrancing. And we'd watch that, we'd hear the roaring sound, and it'd feel like we're almost there. But that TV is plugged in to an external source of power. It'd be plugged into the wall where its electricity is being fed to it. Now, what would happen if I walked up and we're watching the game, and it's right at the end there where Alabama throws that pick six, and I just yank the cord out of the wall? Would the figures keep going? Would they kind of maybe you know, start to slow down a little bit? Would their voices and the roar of the crowd just slow to a crawl? Or would what we experience and see is the television screen goes totally black and it just stops? The existence of that game from our perception is gone. That's how at least modern TVs work. I know that uh, in the old days they maybe were a little slower to turn off. But the reality is they would be instantly gone. See, the TV has no power in and of itself, no matter how brilliant the image or, or uh, involving the program is, it needs an external power source to function. And the millisecond that power is cut off, so is the life of the TV. Whether we want to admit it or not in this life, the second we would lose contact with God, the second that God's hand of providence and grace would be pulled back from us, we would cease to exist. Jonathan Edwards, the, the brilliant American theologian, really developed a, a deep theology of this, that God is not only has he created in the past, but every moment that we live and breathe and our heart beats in our chest is a moment that God, by his creative force, is sustaining life. And if he were ever to relinquish it, it would all go to nothing. This is how we are as people. The author of Hebrews tells us that God is continually upholding all things by the word of his power. And that's why we pray with urgency then to this God, give us this day, this very day, what we need to live. Now, a few years ago, I read a book by um, Alan Noble, who's a professor, I believe, at Oklahoma Baptist University. And the book is called Disruptive Witness. And the premise of the book is that we, especially as well-off Christians, living with all the fuss and distraction and noise in our modern, increasingly secular world, it's very easy for us to be distracted from the simple realities of who God is and who we are as God's creatures. And so it would be good for us as Christians to be mindful of even the small ways in which we can bear witness that our life is by God's grace alone. And so 
For one of those examples, he says one of the radical acts we can practice is a simple one, that we would thank God for the food we eat. We would pray over the food we eat, even in public. Now, sometimes I hear people talk about that like, you know, it's a badge of honor, uh, uh, that you, you know you're really religious if you, if you stand up and give a big boastful prayer in front of people in public. I, he's not talking about that. He's not trying to win any you know, culture war points. But what he is saying is that with most of us that are living in a suburban setting, we are so removed from the reality of how those meals get to our plates that we tend to think nothing of it. So when we sit down to a meal and have this beautiful, tasty, delicious thing before us, we don't realize or know or, or feel the intensity of the labor of all the farmers and the truckers and the butchers and the factory workers and the grocers and the cooks and everybody else that made sure that we could eat that meal. And so when we sit down, as, as we did recently, my wife and I at her mother's birthday at Cracker Barrel, we sat down and I was thinking about this when I ordered Mama's pancake breakfast, which is a little bit of everything from Cracker Barrel. So there's eggs and sausage and hash browns and apples and pancakes and coffee. And I was thinking in my mind, as I started to drift and people were talking about, you know, the, the kids' recitals, upcoming ballets and stuff coming up. I was thinking, it is wild that we're getting all this food from all over, not only the country, but some of it probably from outside of the country, all over the world. So I could have this little rink-a-dink mink meal in, in a Cracker Barrel. Dozens, if not hundreds of, of people, had worked hard to feed me that one meal. We are so dependent when it comes to what we eat, even the cake and coffee we had tonight. All the ingredients that went into that came to us from places way outside of our control. And not only is it dependent on the labor of people, but think of the good weather that's needed. Plenty of rain, plenty of sunshine, few pests, um, uh, dozens of other natural things need to go right. I was talking with Andrea this morning. You know, you live in, in farm country in Australia and how the wildfires can just decimate just just miles of land and how hard the farmers have to fight to make sure that food doesn't go up in flames and the, 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 the crops that they're growing that would sustain their country. I mean, just a bad day with a little wind and a little fire could cause starvation for people. We don't realize how every meal, no matter how detached we've become from the process, is a miracle for us. And going beyond even that, how that when we eat this food, how it, our bodies are able to, if we're, if we're fortunate, where they're able to process everything well, we're able to get nutrients from it, and it doesn't cause us any sickness or illness. So when we pray for our daily bread, we should remember the God who provides for us has orchestrated a long chain of people, places, and events just so that we could have a comforting meal that gives us a little energy to get throughout the day. That's a staggering process, just for us to be able to eat. And so I, I love Malcolm Geith's sonnet. I've been reading some of those 
and our time together. And he reflects just on this very thing, how God uses the people and places and, uh, of the world to provide our daily bread. He writes this in his poem. Give us this day our daily bread, we pray, as though it came straight from the hand of God, as though we held an empty plate each day and found it filled by miracle with food. Although we know the ones who plow and sow, who pick and plant and package while we sleep, with slow back-breaking labor, row by row, and send away to others all the reap, we know that these unseen who meet our needs are all themselves the fingers of your hand, as are the grain, the rain, the air, the land, and slighting these we slight the hand that feeds. What if we glimpsed your daily, what if we glimpsed you daily in their toil and found and thanked and served you through them all? Everything that has to go right in our world, the, the, the chain of delivery and production so that we can eat is a, is a grace from God. It behooves us then, I think, as Christians to thank God at every meal that we have this safe, delicious, and hopefully healthy, <laughs> a lot of times probably not with all the processed food we eat, hopefully healthy food that sustains us. In a childlike fashion, we show our dependence on God by relying on him for even these things to meet our daily needs. Not only these things, but all the things we need to survive. All our daily provision from breads to threads, as one theologian said. From domiciles to doctors, everything that we need daily to keep on living, this is what we pray that God would give us. And the way he gives it to us maybe is miraculous. Maybe it is like manna from heaven. But sometimes it's just to the very ordinary labor and provision of other people. And that is how we ought to pray. Now, how often are we to do this, we ask? Jesus tells us we need to pray this way daily. Haddon Robinson points out that the Greek word that's used here for daily is actually kind of a mysterious word because it's only used in the New Testament in the context of this Lord's Prayer. And for, I mean, centuries, it was found nowhere in classical Greek or Koine Greek, which is the common Greek of Jesus' day. So it was kind of a mystery how it was to be used. But in recent decades, uh, we finally found another usage for the word that Jesus uses here, or the word that is translated um, that Jesus uses, that epiousios is the word, and that's not important. But the, what is interesting about that word is the one other place that we find it used is on a little ancient scrap of papyrus that's just been recently discovered that contains a woman's shopping list. And on that shopping list, next to all the perishable items, you read that written word, epiousios. In other words, wheat for the day, figs for the day, just enough to get by for her and her family that day. That is the mindset in which we pray. This prayer then is asking God to provide all that we need for that day, Lord, give us our provisions we need for this day, whatever they are. So often as people living in this modern world, people with freezers and canned items and, and fast food, it, it, we are so disinclined 
to pray, Lord, feed us even this day. Because we don't think we have to. We think that we can wake up in the morning and just go into the pantry and pour a bowl of cereal and open a refrigerator with electricity, which seems like magic to me, and have a beautiful, perfectly clean, pasteurized, um, uh, guaranteed gallon of milk. And and you know what you're going to There's no guesswork in it. But in these times, more than ever, I think we need to show gratitude for what we have. You know, there's talk out there in the world, and we, you know, there's so much speculation about what the future is going to hold, and so little of dwelling on that is actually productive. Watching the news and having people speculate about the terrors that are about to unfold on us is the biggest waste of time. Jesus tells us not to worry about tomorrow. That day's got evils enough to contain it. Worry about today. We live in a world where we're always told to worry for tomorrow. I remember when the pandemic happened, we all felt panicky. Like, we got to go out there and buy a lot of cans. It's not going to be there. It's not, our, 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 our provisions are not going to be there. It betrays in us that we really don't depend on God for our daily bread like we say we do. We depend on the trucking into Cisco. We depend on Kroger and Publix, but we don't depend on the Lord. Well, you know, there's speculation because there is this, uh, this war that's unfolding in, uh, in Eastern Europe, and because apparently Russia is one of the biggest exporters of certain wheats and grains and things like that, that they're projecting, because there's now sanctions on this country, that we may not have some items in stock like we're used to having. But even if this is the case, and we don't know if it is, perhaps this would provide an opportunity for us in, in the coming days, instead of to feel panicky and, and freaked out and, and, and scared and worried, to do what ancient Christians and to do what many modern Christians and uh, the developing world today know so well to pray that whatever this day holds, Lord, give us our daily bread. Finally, notice this. It, this, this command for us to pray, give us this day, notice that this is given to us in the plural. It's not given to us in the singular. Give me this day my daily bread. We pray, give us this day. Now, here in America, we live in a culture that is obsessed with individualism. Everything we do is about expressing our own identity and our own projecting our own history and, and, and problems and, and successes. We're, we're, everybody brands themselves these days. We are so trained in this culture to constantly think about what's, what's good for me and, and are so little concerned with what everyone else is dealing with. So we're always thinking, well, this works for me, and I don't really care how other people deal with this. Other people in my community are affected by this. And so, as Haddon Robinson says, we often pray for me, my wife, my son, his wife, us four, and no more. That's how we pray sometimes in actuality. But if we pray this prayer, if we pray the words that Jesus commands us to pray, 
together in the community of faith, give us this day our daily bread. And we find that God answers by giving us two loaves and our brother and sister none. Then what we're really finding is that God has answered the prayer for both of us. But he's answered the prayer for us by giving us one loaf to eat and not another loaf to store away, but that loaf to share and so they can eat too. That's how God answers the prayer. Give us this day our daily bread. We live in a world that where not everything is equal. Not everybody is going to go through life getting the same experience. But for those of us that God does provide everything we need and more, what God is giving us the opportunity to do is in turn bless those around us who don't have what we do. Basil the, the Great, one of the uh, uh, early church theologians that was so responsible for shaping how much we, how we talk about the Trinity even, one, a powerful preacher and teacher of the gospel. He would tell us that the bread that gets moldy in our pantry and the jacket that gets moth-eaten in our closet and the water that evaporates on our counter belongs not to us. It's not ours to keep. It's somebody else's. It's our brothers and sisters to give to them. That's how God sees it. When he blesses us, the, 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 um, the imperative that's now on our shoulders is not to hoard all of our blessing, but to freely give to anybody in need. We don't have to be a people that live in a scarcity mindset. That is a sinister thing that is developed in our modern world, where people live as if, if we don't start gathering and collecting and hoarding and keeping this stuff and making it valuable and scarce, uh, then we'll not be able to live. But the God to whom we pray is a generous God who gives freely to any who ask of him. And so for Christians to have a hoarding mindset, to have a scarcity mindset instead of a generosity mindset, instead of a grace mindset, where whatever we have today is what God has provided and we can give away freely, maybe even not knowing where our next blessing is going to come from, but trusting that the God that loves us and saves us will feed us and provide for us even tomorrow, even when we don't know how we'll be provided for. And Jesus himself models this posture of dependence, lest we think that, you know, this is just something totally new to us. He models a dependence on the Father, which in turn he commends to us as his followers. Karl Barth says it this way, that the commander, namely Christ, embodies the command. So the commander himself is the one that obeys the command. Each petition in the Lord's Prayer, then, is a reflection of Jesus' own character. Everything we see in the Lord's Prayer is true of Jesus, even before he gives it to us as an instruction. So we remember, for instance, during this Lenten season, that after Jesus' baptism in the Jordan, where he, in in solidarity, identifies with Israel that needs purification, that needs to to be obedient to God. Not that he himself needs that, but he shows that he's in this with us. 
After this, Jesus goes into the wilderness to prepare for ministry by fasting for 40 days. Jesus himself knows what it's like to experience gnawing hunger, to know what it's like to be parched by thirst, that his body is fully bearing the weight of uh, of physical dependence on God for his survival. Jesus is eating no bread. He's not taking anything to himself. He is depending wholly on the Father to keep him alive. Luke tells us that he ate nothing during those days, and when they were over, he was very hungry. (laughs) And when he was famished during those days, at his physically weakest, we might say, when he would be most prone to, uh, to attack, we might say. Satan appears tempting him to break his fast, to break his vow before God, and to turn these desert rocks into nice steaming loaves of sourdough. At least that's what Satan would have tempted me with. But th- to this Jesus says, man must not live by bread alone, referring to Israel's story of receiving manna from God. You know, he's quoting from Deuteronomy here. And so what is he saying? Jesus is refusing then Satan's uh, uh, um, proposition that he use his own power to sustain himself. Jesus could. Jesus could make out of rocks bread to eat. Jesus could cast himself off the temple and have the angels bear him away. He could do all these things. He has the power. But what he's showing us, that like the Israelites failed to do before him and like we fail to do today, Jesus totally relies on the Father. And the Father totally provides everything he needs. So we'll discuss this in a few weeks when we return to our Sunday morning study of Exodus after Palm uh, Sunday and Easter. But Israel, remember this, Israel, having survived the plagues, unscathed, having crossed the sea without, having, without stepping in so much as a rogue puddle, that was that dry, and, and who has had every single one of their needs met, everything they've needed, God has provided. Scarcely before they get into the wilderness, for a few days, do they start <laughs> to have a panic attack about what's going to come next, and build a false god in the shape of a cow and start praying to it that it would feed them. And then on top of that, they start complaining to one another and to anybody that will listen that we don't even get slave rations anymore. (laughs) But it's in the middle of their faithlessness, not faithfulness, their faithlessness, that God, without ever seeding, without ever harvesting, without ever threshing or baking, without doing any of this, produces bread, gives them manna from heaven to feed them and to fully nourish them. He doesn't have to lift a finger like we do to provide for his people. With just a word from his mouth, they have everything they need. And it's in that context that Moses reminds the Israelites, a generation later when many of the older people have, have died off and their children who were experiencing that and their young age have now grown to full adults, some of them probably elderly themselves. Before they enter the promised land, Moses reminds them, he humbled you by letting you go hungry. Then he gave you manna to eat, which you and your ancestors had not known. 
so that you might learn that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. And through his obedience, Jesus enacts his own prayer. And West Hill comments, he demonstrates what it looks like to trust in the manna-giving God, the one that he calls Father. If you want to know how to pray this prayer for your life and how to live it out, you look to Jesus, who prays it and lives it out perfectly, knowing that none of us could ever keep it. But this prayer for daily bread, although it is for physical sustenance, it goes deeper than that. And we're winding down here. But in fact, it it denotes to us a radically spiritual um, uh, kind of bread. In other words, something that's more than bread. Jesus expounds this a little bit further in, in John 6 when a bunch of skeptics are gathering around to challenge him. And one of the miracles that they want him to do, to conjure up like Moses, if he really is who he says he is, they say. If you really are that, prove to us, be like Moses, and summon down manna from heaven. Do you remember how Jesus responds in this exchange? He actually doesn't even address that comment. He doesn't address the past and the manna, but he focuses on the present moment. To give us clarity about what that manna was always signifying, he says, truly, I tell you, Moses didn't give you the bread from heaven. Moses didn't do that. But my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the one who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. We're start, if you're a Christian, you're starting to key in. If you know Jesus, you, you're starting to get what he's saying here. But they're not quite getting it yet. So they say, great, sir, give us this bread. If there's a bread, they're like the, the woman at the well. When he talks about, you can drink this water and thirst no more. Give me this water. Jesus doesn't realize. They don't realize what he's saying. They're missing his meaning, so Jesus clarifies in verse 35 of John 6. I am the bread of life. I'm the manna from heaven. Jesus told them, no one who comes to me will ever be hungry, and no one who believes in me will ever be thirsty again. But they misunderstand him even further. And so Jesus spells it out all over again. And starting in verse 48, he says this. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, but they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that anyone may eat eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. (laughs) Just in case you don't get it. The bread that I will give For the life of the world is my flesh. Jesus reminds us that manna, miraculous as it may be, only lasts a day or two. Maybe you can stuff yourself to the gills on it, but you'll be hungry when you wake up the next morning. But there's another kind of bread that's needed, not just for um, physical life here on earth, but for eternal life from now through always. And that bread which Jesus offers so freely, that bread which we partook of this morning, is not just flour and water, it's his very life given to us to nourish us. Jesus says later, Truly I tell you, 
Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you do not have life in yourselves. The one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day because my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. And so, church, what that means for us is when we come to the Lord's supper table, when we pray, give us this day our daily bread, we do indeed look for the ways in which the Lord provides for us. Medicine, um, shelter, clothing, uh, food, uh, relationships, all the things we need to be healthy human beings. We look for that. But we're showing not only dependence on how God feeds us physically, but we're looking to the bread and drink that give us eternal life. Through a very ordinary unleavened loaf of bread and a very ordinary cup of, of the vine, these physical elements on the table remind us in every way and spiritually in a real way, I believe, they communicate a grace to us that we do not live by bread alone, but the word of God made flesh for us, crucified on a cross means that as we partake in him and his life and we come to his supper table, we are reminded and in actuality we are in that moment experiencing a grace that we are being saved. And so Christians, we are bold to pray together. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.